This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. This podcast is brought to you through support from our partner, the Kaliapea Foundation. Kaliapea envisions a future grounded in compassion, respect, dignity, reverence for nature, and care for each other in the earth. Other organizations they support include the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance and Led to Life. To learn more about Kaliapea's mission, visit Kaliapea.org. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. It's these common things that we see on a day-to-day basis and maybe end up as a splat on our windshield that are doing our recycling. They're the ones feeding wildlife. They're the ones providing the pollination services. And so it, we're, we're having to rethink about what we want to preserve. Today we are speaking with Dr. David Wagner. Dr. Wagner is an entomologist and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology. His research interests are in the biology and evolution of moths and insect conservation. He has published several books on caterpillars his 2005 guide with Princeton University Press, Caterpillars of Eastern North America, a guide to identification and natural history, is in its ninth printing. Thank you so much, Dr. Wagner, for joining us today. I want to say that, like I had mentioned earlier, we've never had an entire episode dedicated to entomology and insects. And I know this is, in so many ways, a foundational topic to be discussing in terms of Earth's health and threats facing ecosystems. So I really appreciate your work and your dedication to this subject. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Invertebrates and insects are really what tether together our our terrestrial and freshwater ecosystems. They're very, very important. And some people can't live with insects, but we know that we can't live without them either. So Mm -hmm. yeah, they are quintessential to pollination and, and birds and many of the things we love about nature. Absolutely. And I've read that there are over 1 million known species that inhabit Earth alongside of us. Or if you include species yet to be identified, scientists place a number closer to 8 million. Approximately 80% of them are all insects. Unfortunately, their vast domain has made them equally susceptible to the perils of civilization. In fact, insects are declining almost twice as fast as vertebrates. In the 90s, conversations around declining pollinators took root, and since then, alarms have you know, been rung about moths, fireflies, and monarch butterflies. But five years ago, a team of biologists calculated that globally, in the past 35 years, invertebrates such as bees and beetles have decreased by 45%. So, Dr. Wagner, perhaps you could start us off by sharing the magic and mystery of insects 
as well as what might be some of the driving factors behind the so-called insect apocalypse. Well, just in terms of the magic and mystery, most of us love butterflies, and I think they really enrich our journey and our walks you know, through life. And there are many other beautiful bees and beetles and all kinds of little things that are running the world for us, providing ecosystem services that aesthetically, I think they're great and uh, certainly make more, life more interesting. In terms of the biomass, in a tropical forest. We all want to go to a tropical forest if we love nature. At some point in our lives, it sounds good to go to New Guinea or the Amazon, but most of the biomass, most of the, if you put all the animals, all the, all the insects and birds and monkeys and things that we could find on scales, we would find out that the insects greatly outweigh all of the bird life and, and um, many of the mammals and, and what have you in that forest. And it's really a surprise to people to see how important insects really are. And they, they provide so many services for us. I mean, we wouldn't even have wildflowers if it weren't for bees to carry out these pollination services. And that's a lot of the, the crops, especially the, the fruits and uh, seed nut crops that we have, but we need them for alfalfa, forage, and all kinds of other aspects. I can't imagine what the food shortages would be like if we didn't have insect pollinators. And they provide all kinds of other services for us. They're very, very important in terms of nutrient cycling, getting rid of the dung, getting rid of fallen leaves, getting rid of fallen wood and that sort of thing. So very, very important in terms of being nature's recyclers. Uh, they provide biological control. Bugs eat other bugs. And so we would actually have to have more pesticides on our foods if we didn't have bugs, these predaceous bugs that eat bad bugs like aphids and the like. We all know that ladybugs, for example, eat tremendous number of aphids and dragonflies are around to eat mosquitoes, which carry so many uh, medically important diseases. So we, we absolutely depend on insects. They're very, very important. And I already touched on this before, but we, we really need insects just to feed all the animal life that we really appreciate on this, this planet. I think without insects in our forests, in our gardens, we would have very few birds in our yards, and uh, certainly spring would be very silent. Um, songbirds in particular are dependent on insects. Mm. Thank you for sharing a bit about this to begin with, and I'm very troubled yeah. hearing about... I didn't... Oh, yeah, please. Well, I was going to say I didn't get a chance to actually get into some of the drivers that are behind the declines, and so at this point... I'm afraid it's death by a thousand cuts or there's many different drivers, but one of the major ones that we're thinking about now is agricultural intensification. And in the past, farms, family farms were small. There was hedgerows, there was pastures with wildflowers, wet meadows, hedges, and many different places, habitats for wildlife and plant life to live. And since about the 1950s, but certainly... Uh, since the Green Revolution, we've been seeing the closure or the abandonment of small farms, and we now have mega farms, uh, huge monocultures, uh, often genetically modified, with lots of fertilizer input, herbicide input, pesticide input. So there, it, it's a very different kind of agriculture that we're practicing now, and it's become very nature-unfriendly. And I think that that is a big part of the decline that we're seeing but of course, when we talk about the loss of biodiversity anywhere on the planet, whether it's plant life or bears and birds or insects, 
oftentimes the number one cause is habitat destruction, where we're taking this habitat and either converting it into residential or commercial developments or the deforestation that might be happening in the tropics with much of that deforestation actually being tied back to agriculture again. So habitat destruction and agricultural intensification are enormous causes, I think, in these declines. But we also have things like light pollution, uh, nitrification from the burning of fossil fuels. And the one looking forward, if we could, if we could get, look, get our crystal balls out and look forward into the future, I think climate change is going to have a uh, steadily increasing role. It's not so much that global warming, the way people think about climate change. I, I'm afraid that the actual damage from climate change is going to be driven by the great variation that climate change is causing. We're seeing storms, much bigger storms. We're seeing more droughts, and the droughts could be deal changers. More frequent droughts, more severe droughts, and these, especially with higher temperatures, are going to be devastating for things like insects. They have so much surface area and not so much volume, so they're very susceptible uh, to drying conditions. So there's all these things that happen with climate change that we don't think about very often that I think are perhaps even more important. So um, the indirect effects of just increasing the global temperature by one or two degrees centigrade will mean we'll have many more droughts that are uh, changing plant distributions. Uh, all the fires, the, the American West had over 100 fires burning at one time last year. There was a fire burning in essentially every state and lower Canadian province. These kinds of things are deal breakers uh, for all kinds of biodiversity across the planet. And so I, I think that climate change is the number one enemy of biodiversity and life as we know it on this planet and even food security. Mm -hmm. Yes, we've had many in-depth conversations with different scientists and indigenous leaders around the effects of climate change. And it's huge to imagine all of the changes, so many of these changes that we, one, don't recognize and many of them that we don't even see because we're not privy to what we're losing. And I was reading that the disappearance of insects has been described as a possible quote bottom up trophic cascade. And a 2013 paper in Nature argued that a loss of only 30% of species abundance can be so destabilizing to the ecosystem that it will cause a second species extinction. In fact, it found that 80% of the time is the secondarily impacted species that goes extinct first. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate further on the implications of insect loss on creatures like salmon, nightingales, and earthworms. Are we coming to a point where scientists are not only seeing other species suffering from habitat loss, but from starvation as well? Well, uh, what, you're, what you're getting at is a, sort of a different sort of problem than many of us have been looking at for the last two or three decades. It seems like when you think about conservation or you hear about environmental activism, it's often focused on rare and endangered species. And I, I think these recent reports are causing us to think about the world and the threats and the problems really differently. And it's maybe not so much about the rare and endangered species that we should be worried about on a day-by-day -day basis, but it's these really abundant things like earthworms and uh, small beetles and springtails and things we don't even think about because they're so common. But it's these really abundant things in nature uh, 
that all the species tend to eat or are fed upon by them. And so if you want to think about a food web, the things that are most important in that food web are the ones that are most common, that account for the most energy in the ecosystem. And so we're starting to see declines, like the ones you spoke of, of the declines of common species. And that is frightening because you get these cascading effects or ripple phenomena that move through the ecosystem and and disrupt that food web and break these linkages, break the pollination services of this plant or that. So they're very frightening and will have consequences upwards and downwards. So they will percolate or cascade up to bird life. We've already talked about the, the importance of insects to songbirds. We're seeing major declines of some insectivorous vertebrates. We're seeing declines of swallows, night jars, and other species of birds that eat primarily insects. We don't really know if this is insect decline that's driving it. We just know that there's a correlation. And it's very important in our conversation today to distinguish causation from correlation. So they're they're not the same. We, we have a correlation that many insectivorous birds are having a rough time, but we don't actually know the cause of that. Uh, but we're starting, we need to collect data. So that's the most important thing that can come out of our discussion, our conversation today, is that entomologists, biologists, conservation biologists, policymakers don't really have the data on insects that we want and we need so we can identify what these causal factors are that you, you asked me about. We don't know to what extent it's agriculture, agriculture intensification, or maybe a new pesticide such as neonicotinoids, to what extent it is drought, and what have you. So we need more data and more long-term studies. Mm -hmm. This question around data is something that I've thought with for a while, um, because on one hand, I understand that scientific data is extremely important so that we can take those reports to policymakers, government officials, large you know, farm owners, corporations, et cetera, and be able to point directly to scientific reports. On the other hand, you know, I've spoken to many indigenous leaders and indigenous ecologists, and there's also this part of me that says, don't we know things? Can't we see things without having to spend more and more time collecting data just to prove that toxins, light pollution, um, insecticides. I mean, of course, we. it seems obvious that insecticides would be having a major impact on insects. You know, we're spraying something that's killing insects over thousands, if not millions of acres across this country. So I, I have this battle within my own mind of, of not that I don't think that we need data, but how much data do we actually need to prove what seems in some ways obvious? Well, I guess it depends on the question. And so I, I think about that a lot. I especially think about this in terms of climate change. Do we need to take out our thermometers and measure that the mean temperature of where I live or California is, is one degree or one and a half degrees centigrade warmer? I think we all have enough data about climate change to know we have to keep fossil fuels in the ground. So I think that's an, an urgent message, and I think scientists should do a, be more actively involved in activism and bringing about change. And we don't need necessarily to measure that or to predict. We know from our models, we know what happens when we put gigatons of carbon 
that was in the ground and put it into the atmosphere, just based on first principles, that's going to have an impact. There are other things, though, for example, this insect decline phenomenon, we don't really know what the causal factors are. And I think it's very important there that we disambiguate between pesticides. I mean, you talk about pesticides, but we don't really know it's pesticides in the sense that pesticides are a proxy for this agricultural intensification we're talking about. When we go from small farms to large mega farms, there's a lot of things that change and not just pesticide or at least not just insecticide usage. There's, there's also these Roundup Ready crops. Uh, there's cosmetic changes where we want large tracts of land to look clean and free of weeds. I mean, that could be the insect decline problem. We have a single monoculture, whereas before we had many different weeds and other plants and nectar sources growing along these fields. But I think in the case of insecticides in particular, I think it's, it is important that we identify what it is about agricultural intensification. Is it, the, is it the scale? Is it the herbicides that we're spraying on these crops to remove weeds? Is it the, the insecticides like neonicotinoids? Is it uh, the fact that it's just a giant, huge monoculture, that farming is on a different scale? We, I think it's, it's Im really important that we tease that apart, disambiguate what the causal factor is, because there are a lot of things that are correlated with pesticide usage that may not be pesticides. And sometimes the, the alternatives, let's say we, we legislate against neonicotinoids uh, because we think there's a correlation, and that's not necessarily causative then we might have to use another kind of pesticide that causes more human cancers. So I think science and truth and knowledge is imperative. And we that's our responsibility and our charge as scientists. But I fully agree with you. When, when we have a clear problem like climate change, that it's incumbent on scientists to do more to, to spread that message and maybe not try to measure so much with their thermometer, but to get out there and do something. In terms of the neonicotinoids that you've been speaking about, I've read that they're referred to as our generation's iteration of DDT, and they have been banned, and people have been doing things about them. They've been banned in Italy, Germany, France, and Slovenia, and are largely held responsible for declining bee populations. And it's incredible because they're still somehow one of the most popular insecticides on the market, especially in this country. I'd also read a scientific review on insect decline, and the scientist wrote that a comprehensive reduction in pesticide use could prevent the extinction of over 40% of the world's insect population. So I'm wondering, let's say so much of this agricultural farmland was converted back to small-scale, diverse family farms and really taken a whole different approach to the way in which we produce the world's or the country's food. Do you think that that would create a change? And of course, I, I do believe it would, but how long do you think it would take for surrounding ecosystems and insects to emerge again? Well, there's a lot in your, your question. First off, I think the data on neonicotinoids is quite contentious. And so we're not certain that the legislation didn't get out in front of the, the science. There hasn't been enough replicated studies to understand what the effects of neonicotinoids are to insects at this point, especially sublethal effects. So when we spray a pesticide, everybody thinks about that the bugs die. But in many cases, at low doses, 
the bugs don't necessarily die, but uh, these could have immune consequences, orientation consequences, what we call sublethal effects. And those kinds of effects are very hard to study because they may only slightly compromise an individual. But that's how evolution works, that over time, those slightly compromised individuals leave less offspring. And so there could be a great consequence. So, But in any case, when we don't use neonicotinoids, agriculture is likely to use other pesticides. And that's really the, the problem. It's an area of research that it's not my expertise. I do know that there is quite a bit of literature that that's having trouble uh, disambiguating the role of neonicotinoids. Again, because most of these studies have been done in the laboratory or they've been correlative and they haven't shown direct causes of some of these pesticides in nature. So that's a, that's a frontier where we need more funding and especially more field studies and experimental work. But in situ, out in the fields, especially what their impacts are in low doses away from the agricultural fields. That's, I think, where we need it. I can tell you that there are places in Europe and elsewhere where neonicotinoids are used and where they've had restoration programs for a special butterfly or rare species, the butterflies recovered fine once they brought about habitat changes. So it's not an easy, it's not as easy as uh, we would like it to be uh, in terms of knowing what to do. In terms of agriculture, you know, we have a growing human population and we have to feed all the people of the world. As much as I, I believe agriculture and agriculture intensification is the problem, I also recognize that it's necessary. And so I just think we need to figure out ways uh, to make it more nature friendly. And I don't know that we could ever go back to small scale farms. I'm, I hope we go back to some organic farms and some smaller farms that this is, becomes uh, living, living closer to the land and having some of our produce come from smaller farms. I think that would be awesome. But on the other hand, I think we ha also have to be realistic and just find ways to make these larger farms more nature friendly. Uh, uh, leave some some water bodies, some wetlands that are unmanaged, uh, allow more weeds, hedgerows, some small wetland areas that serve as wet meadows that, you know, could be nectaring stations for migratory species like the monarch when they move, you know, from Mexico all the way north in to the Great Lakes states or something like that. So there's a lot we can do. And uh, certainly we could look to find pesticides and herbicides that are used either in lower amounts or have minor or diminished non-target impacts to some of the species that are outside of that agricultural field. They're in bordering wildlands, say. The For the Wild podcast team is so grateful for the continued support through our Patreon subscribers. If you haven't signed up yet, head over to www.patreon.com slash for the wild to engage directly with our team, weekly guests, to hear additional content, and receive access to other bonus material throughout the year.
As much as we've been talking about industrial agriculture, some of the most prominent research around insect decline comes from nature preserves in places like Germany, Costa Rica, and Puerto Rico, which I was really surprised about. For example, a study last year showed a 76% decrease in flying insects over the past few decades in German preserves. It's especially frightening to think that we're seeing such extreme insect loss, not in urban infrastructure-heavy areas, but in preserves that should ideally be a safe haven for many species. So I'm wondering, what exactly does this signify? If we're seeing a loss of insect populations in areas where there is little pesticide use or habitat loss, does that mean that climate change is the driving force, or is it possible that insects are showing global susceptibility to an accumulation of toxins? I think we can eliminate the last in that we're not seeing a signal of global insect decline at this point. There's nothing that I've read or found. I'm, I'm reviewing this now for the interview of entomology. So we are seeing insect decline. It's usually in areas of high human occupation, urbanization, residential areas. And we're also seeing in areas of agricultural intensification. I am quite worried about the phenomenon that you mentioned, though, where we're getting decline inside reserves. I think the Germans have the best data. Their Krefeld Entomological Society looked at 63 sites, and they've been looking at them for over 100 years in certain places. So they have a tremendous amount of data that can be brought to bear on, on this issue. And I've been in contact with one of their lead scientists, Martin Sorg, and he tells me that in at least 61 or 62 of those reserves, they're adjacent to agricultural land and in certain cases actually surrounded by agricultural land. They have one site that I believe is situated more towards the mountains or in the foothills of the mountains, and that site has not shown much insect decline. So this is still unpublished work, but it does suggest that these declines are not global. Uh, they're not ubiquitous. We don't necessarily know what all the causal factors are, but Again, I think we're, we're, we're seeing them primarily in areas of high human occupation or high human activity. You did bring up the tropics, and that, that probably is directly linked to climate change. And I'm quite worried about that, especially when you have wet tropical forests that were bathed in clouds or receiving rains almost every day. Now, with these warmer temperatures, the clouds are being driven up the mountains or off the top of volcanoes. And we are starting to see some very serious consequences from those kinds of changes where we have a wet forest or one that was historically wet and now is drying out. And there's a new paper that will be out, I imagine, in the next issue or very, very soon in biological conservation by Dan Jansen talking about just this, what, what you brought up, the drying out and um, climate changes that are happening in some of the tropical forests. His report is going to be what he's seen in Costa Rica over the last 40 years, and it won't make you happy. It's quite frightening and upsetting. Now, similarly to many other species, insects can only handle certain climate thresholds before their internal systems cease regulation. 
And I'm wondering, are there any insects that will be unfazed by global warming? And what about a higher CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere? Do they pose a different set of risks to insects' internal systems? Well, in terms of temperature, I think I'm not that worried about it. Insects are cold-blooded animals that see wild swings in their temperatures on a daily basis. And this is particularly true of temperate insects or insects from deserts where they might see a 70 degree swing in temperature just in their own bodies over the course of a 24 hours between day and night. Mountain species as well would see tremendous fluctuations in their temperature. Now that's not always true. There are going to be organisms that live in very, very stable areas like a tropical rainforest differs very little between night and day and essentially has no seasonal variation if they're on the equator, right? So you only have seasonal forests when you're away from the equator. So those insects might be really susceptible to temperature fluctuations, but the insects of the temperate zone see wild, wild changes in fluctuations in temperature. So I'm not so worried about those, but I think we, we, we're back to climate change and back to water because insects, if you think about it, are all surface area and almost no volume. And so their potential to dry out very quickly, even flying just a few hundred meters is staggering, particularly if they've lived in areas or forests that have been uh, wet historically. So I think these higher temperatures with climate change are gonna pose uh, a real challenge um, for these animals, especially places where, again, where we, we see drying conditions or we see extended droughts or uh, more severe droughts or more frequent droughts. And not only are they gonna have direct effects on these animals, but all the indirect effects. When you start drying out ecosystems, you change the plants, you stress the plants, you end up with these conifers or pine trees across the West. Because they're subject to drought conditions, they're not as healthy as they were maybe three decades ago, and now they're becoming more susceptible to bark beetles and other insect pests. So there's going to be all kinds of indirect effects, the, the increased fires and what have you that accompany climate change. I have heard that many entomologists have acknowledged that while they're noticing staggering decline, to the unrestrained eye, it's hard to detect that anything is amiss for most people, coupled with the reality that so many people have a mentality of immediate extermination when it comes to insects. I can't help but wonder, how have cultural narratives and attitudes around insects contribute to the invisibility of the insect apocalypse? Well, there's certain cultures that don't appreciate insects at all. And there's other cultures, Chinese cultures, that keep crickets and have sort of a, a passion or appreciation for insects. Uh, many, many Asian countries appreciate insects for, for their beauty. They're often kept as pets. Um, kids fly dragonflies around on strings. And it's very popular to keep giant beetles as a pet. And in the way a an American might keep a chameleon or a knoll or a fish. Different cultures around the world eat insects and appreciate them for those reasons. And people may be eating insects as well. It's, um, we can get to that later in the show, but they certainly are much lower on the food chain and much better for the planet and a, a very rich place to get protein. Uh, save a lot of water and a lot of energy by eating more insects. And they're even starting to show up in protein bars and the like. But at least in North America, insects are not especially loved. And so there, there are people that still go out of their way to step on them. Uh, so that that is sort of a cultural thing that happens here. In Europe, there's much more appreciation for insects. I don't know why that is, but uh, many lawyers and uh, gentry and doctors collect insects 
or at least study insects or photograph them, uh, know them by name and, and the like. So it's often been a pastime for white collar people and royalty, you know, Miriam Rothschild and, and, and others, uh, even military uh, oftentimes are, are interested or do a little bit of entomology and uh, backyard naturalism and, and uh, getting involved, getting closer to nature. So I, I think over in Europe, they're actually quite concerned about this loss of, of insect diversity and loss of insect abundance. And perhaps that's why it was really recognized there first, because there's so many people collecting data, so many citizen scientists that appreciate these animals and uh, photograph them and are interested in their life histories and what makes them tick and how we conserve them and the like. And uh, you, you brought up one point that's really important, and that is that the decline is slow but fast, and it depends on what time scale we're talking about in, in the human lifespan. But you're talking about a decline, and it's only one or two percent a year, and that doesn't seem like very much, one or two percent loss of abundance per year. But that's a loss of 10% of biomass in a single decade. And so you can't run that forward very many decades before you have ecosystem collapse and you have birds going extinct, wildflowers without pollinators. In an evolutionary sense, that's an exceptionally fast rate and very frightening and why a lot of scientists and policymakers and people are paying attention to what's going on. But over the course of a human lifetime, you know, what you've seen, the number of splats, bug splats on your windshield, it's barely detectable, but it's very serious rate. Well, it's interesting because I, I was just thinking about the whole windshield phenomenon because I, I do remember seeing a lot more bugs when I would drive through places with my family growing up. You know, we'd get out of the car from a road trip and our car would just be smashed with with so many different varieties and and I've heard from many people that they are feeling a decline in insects even whether it's in their backyard like I said on this this windshield phenomenon so yeah I I I feel both and I feel this kind of invisibility around insect extinction. But then when I really think about it, I, I do notice a lot less, even of things that we may consider to be more common insects. Oh, for sure. And so we don't have much data, but just about any old timer, anybody who's lived uh, for 30, 30 years, three decades or four decades, they've seen a change or they, they feel like they've seen a change. And I think most have. But part of that is is also it's difficult situation because a lot of that's sort of wrapped up in urbanization and more people. So a, a really, really important piece of that would be to, to find out how the land around where you used to take those drives has changed in four decades. Has it reverted from open meadows and pastures and small farms to forest, which uh, would have perhaps fewer bugs? Or have there been more residential developments and houses in that general area? Because if that's the case, those each have an effect. I mean, many people use pesticides on their lawns. Anyone who leaves a porch light on or a street light becomes a feeding station for bats at night. Every single light left on at night becomes a feeding station for bats at night and for birds in the morning. So it's not an easy problem, and we really need data. In the past couple of years, we've seen more and more information disseminate around the fate of monarch butterflies. Over the last two decades, monarch populations in the western part of the country have declined by over 90%, and in March 2018, Mexican officials concluded populations had declined for the second consecutive year. 
Yet the monarch is not considered an endangered species, and as I understand it, it's thriving in some areas. What is however endangered is the biological phenomenon of their North American migration. Can you talk about the significance of losing biological phenomena, a topic when it seems to be completely left out of conversations around extinction? Well, I think that's right. We, we don't have that many things that we really consider a biological phenomenon, but the monarch is certainly one. And apparently, for anybody that's ever been to these overwintering aggregations in Mexico, it's life-changing. It's just impossible to imagine billions and billions of butterflies and, and how beautiful and magic that experience can be for, for anyone from five years old to, to 85. It's, it's truly extraordinary. And not all monarchs are migratory. So we have monarchs that stay year round in California. And so that's a very short migration. And we have monarchs in Costa Rica that might just move between dry and wet forest or farther up and farther down a mountain. And that happens throughout South America. What's really special about what's going on in, in North America is these huge migrations of millions and millions, in some cases, billions of butterflies that are coming down to these furs in central Mexico. And it's truly extraordinary. And we, we want to protect things like this that are really unusual on the, on the planet. So, you know, so the butterfly itself is not endangered. It actually has non-migratory populations in many parts of Central America and South America and actually elsewhere on the globe. So what's really special is the fact that these butterflies are able to migrate 2,000 miles. We don't have anything else like it. So I don't know how many species of insects are in the New World, but let's just say there's 7 million species of insects on the planet and at least half of those, maybe 4 million, are in the New World because of the Amazon. And that's the most biodiverse place on the planet. That's where we have the most monkeys and the most, most insects and the most plants and orchids and what have you. So of all of those, I mean, there's nothing comparable. So out of, out of 4 million, the monarch is, is really special and worth preserving. And it's going to need our help. Uh, this is a, they're very uh, susceptible to practices, uh, both uh, in and around the overwintering furs. They, they have these special furs that are in the high mountains, not that far from Mexico City, actually. And they serve as giant refrigerators. So, so basically, these millions and millions and millions of, of monarchs come together. They find these fir trees and they all huddle up together um, in unimaginable numbers. And they, they have this biological refrigerator. It can't get too warm or they end up uh, getting too thirsty and starving to death. And it can't get too cold or they freeze. And we've probably all seen pictures of um, uh, tens of thousands of frozen monarchs. And, and again, this is where climate change is going to perhaps threaten that phenomenon. But they also need help on their way north and uh, their, their giant migration on the way south. But it's, it's, a, it's a fabulous story. And I can't tell you how many people enjoy having monarchs and how many kids go out and look for monarch caterpillars in their yard and how many children learn about metamorphosis and development and, and maybe use that as an allegory or a, a metaphor of their, their own development and how as a child they're going to, you know, it's going to be Cinderella or it's a phoenix from the flame. It's going to be a second opportunity. It's going to be about maturation and flying off. So we, we really want to keep this butterfly around. There's nothing else like it. And it's certainly a magnificent animal and really sort of an ambassador, a poster child for 
for all invertebrates or for all insects. And, and so it's a good banner. It's a good cause and it, indeed really special. Mm, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more that the monarch is this ambassador and it's, it really brings people into interest and engagement with insect populations. And, and so thank you for speaking about that. Now on the topic of extinction and what does and does not get recognized it's been brought to my attention in doing the research for this interview just how much we have become reliant on extinction as a metric. So do you see any problems with this sort of hyper-attention around extinction? Are we falling into this trap of only caring about one set of species at a time once they tip towards extinction, rather than focusing our energy and acknowledging the tremendous value of our more common kin that we're upholding ecosystems without any recognition. And this is something that you spoke to at the beginning of the interview, just around um, people focusing just solely on the kind of charismatic, uh, large extinct mammals. Yeah. So by the time an insect gets very, very rare and might be put on one of our lists as a threatened or an endangered species, or even by the time it's on a, just a watch list, it's probably so ecologically diminished that it's not likely to be important in terms of the fates of other animals. There's probably not going to be too many other species that would go extinct. You could call it co-extinction once we have an organism that's really rare. Again, this phenomenon, this insect loss, insect decline phenomenon, I think we're worried about it because it's actually the decline of the common species and the ones that are providing the ecosystem services. Uh, things like a honeybee, it would be a, an extraordinary example in the sense that it, it's it's hyperabundant and we can see it on any walk. We can plant a butterfly garden and plan to see honeybees in our yard, but we absolutely depend on them for uh, billions of dollars worth of pollination services. It's these common things that we see on a day-to-day -day basis and maybe end up as a splat on our windshield that are doing our recycling. They're the ones feeding wildlife. They're the ones providing the pollination services. And so it, we're, we're having to rethink about what we want to preserve. And I think with, with invertebrates, we, uh, first and foremost, we want to understand what the causal factors are. We, we have to understand if this is climate change or is it an insecticide? Is it light pollution? Is it just carving up the landscape with, with residences and living with 300 people per square kilometer? Um, we, we need to know the answer to that in, in order to protect these things. But, you know, I think with invertebrates, there's so many different species. I, I would think like the average eastern state might have 25,000 species of insects. We can't protect every single one of those. I mean, that's not there's not enough knowledge or conservation dollars to do it. So we have to start thinking about habitat preservation and uh, trying to eliminate what might be the primary causal factors. And for example, you, you've brought up climate change and, and other guests on your show have, have brought up climate change. We need to know how important that is in the temperate zone. And is it different in the temperate zone than the tropics? And is it different in the Arctic? We, we expect to see really big changes in Arctic ecosystems with, with, with climate change. We're already seeing them. And in fact, we're actually seeing some insect loss in places away from any humans in Arctic areas. So we need this data.
week, attorneys for the National Butterfly Center filed a restraining order against federal construction of the border wall, which would disturb a butterfly refuge. And for many years, the United States has passed treaties protecting migratory birds, but that protection has never been extended to butterflies, bees, and other pollinators. So do you see importance in pursuing these avenues and granting treaty protections to entire classes of species that have otherwise been neglected under a capitalist system that really only places value on what is immediately necessary for the well-being of humans. Well, I think it would be necessary for the, the people in Texas to actually show that the, the insects couldn't move because of the wall. I, I don't know that we have that data. I haven't seen any papers on that. But I do know that the wall does impede the movement of wildlife, particularly vertebrates. So I think I think at least mammals are highly compromised by something like that, where they can't move along the Rio Grande River. And I know that there's even some species of cats, you know, the margays and, and what have you, uh, where this is a, a real issue. I don't know to what extent butterflies would have any trouble crossing a wall, or uh, but we I don't know that we have data. So I can't really speak to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like it's still um, very much in a development phase of research. But it's something to consider. Every development project, infrastructure project, resource extraction project will inevitably affect insects. You know, we can't get around that. I was even reading for as good intentioned as windmills are to create renewable energy, they're having a large impact on migratory birds. So, you know, we really have to be thoughtful when we are doing more and more human development that each of these projects will inevitably have some effect on these creatures. Yeah, it's hard to do anything in nature without having winners and losers. And uh, what we don't want to end up with is a, a very diminished future with a bunch of generalist and weedy species. And all of our specialists have uh, tanked. And uh, some of the things, some of the creatures that we really love, many of the butterflies, for example, that are, are special and unique, losing those and, and getting just a bunch of uh, weedy garden species uh, that thrive with human habitation. Robins and starlings are going to be fine as long as people are around, but that's not necessarily how we want to measure. or It's not the it's not what we want to leave for our children and our children's children as part of our legacy. No, absolutely not. I'm sure at this point of the conversation, thinking about the legacy and what we want to leave behind, Many of our listeners are wondering what actions can be taken in response to mass insect decline. You know, what is the feasibility of starving off decline through individual actions, like considering more nature-friendly landscaping and garden practices? Or what other actionable items must we pursue to do something? Well, I think the most important thing, probably on a global basis, is to work for clean energy. 
whatever that would be. We pretty much have to keep carbon in the ground. We need to fund it. Uh, we need to encourage our local communities to, to find ways to get clean energy. We can influence the legislators in our state to look for clean energy. We can divest from carbon-based fuels. I mean, that that's the obvious thing and probably the most urgent thing and will save the greatest number of species if we were worried about posterity and our children's children's children and what kind of planet we want to, to give to our offspring. But uh, there's lots of things we can do. You, you brought up a really good one, and that is uh, the kinds of decisions we make in terms of just how we landscape our yard. You know, how much, how much grass do we want and how much pesticide do we want to use on that? And would we accept a few weeds? But the, one of the main ones that I think is really fun to think about would be uh, just the decisions on what kind of plants we, we get at the greenhouses and where we, we buy those plants. Uh, certainly ornamental plants uh, from another nation are not going to support any caterpillars or maybe maybe 10% of the caterpillars that would be found on a native species of plant that had the same architecture, the same number of leaves. And so we really want to plant natives if we want caterpillars, and you got to have caterpillars if you want birds. These people go to the nursery and buy ornamental plants from Japan and all these horticultural varieties, might as well be putting signs up in their yard, uh, birds are not welcome here. And I think that um, how we how we think about landscaping in cities and in, in our residential areas is really, really important. And I, I think pollinator gardens are just freaking awesome. I mean, they're really, really fun and they work uh, well. So I think that's another way we can think about pollinator gardens and butterfly gardens and, and, and planting things that are, that are eaten by insects and, and not, not necessarily killing or poisoning them. So it's just a different paradigm. And I, I think most people, if they pay attention to insects, will find them very fascinating and, and most beautiful, particularly if you can magnify them. I think size matters to people, you know, and if, if something's only a centimeter long, we, we tend to ignore it. But if you take that centimeter long creature and, and take a photograph of it and blow it up on a, your computer screen or even project it on a wall, it's fascinating. It's beautiful. It's worthy of our attentions. And I, I think a lot of people are just having a blast with moth photography and a bee photography and iNaturalist and some of these things that help them identify these, these organisms. It, it makes every walk way more interesting. Yes, yes, I absolutely agree with that. So to conclude our conversation, this this conversation where we've gone so many places, and I really appreciate the depth of your knowledge, I want to read a quote from E.O. Wilson who said, quote, if all humankind were to disappear, the world would regenerate back to the rich state of equilibrium that existed 10,000 years ago. If insects were to vanish, the environment would collapse into chaos, end quote. He went on to describe how insect extinction would leave us with a mere diet of wind-pollinated grains and fish, praying for the return of bugs and weeds. So I'd love if you could elucidate on what a world without insects would look like. So a world without insects, you know, I, I think about this all the time, and uh, we, we do have some. When we go to the, the high Arctic latitudes, Fairbanks, Alaska, in, in Northwood, we don't see many insects. Most of the resources there uh, come from the sea, actually, and krill and maybe insect analogs in the ocean. Uh, I, I guess that insects are just terrestrial shrimp. I think that's what the molecular biologists tell us. But in any case, as we move away from the Arctic and we move towards the equator, insects become absolutely interwoven and integral uh, to how we view the world, what it sounds like, what it smells like, what it tastes like, where our food comes from, there would be much less food. I, so we would have a, a very serious 
food security problem without insects. And uh, it would politically destabilize many countries. The continent of Africa would be very, very compromised if we started seeing major declines in in pollinators. Uh, We absolutely are dependent on these uh, for our economy, for security, for food on our tables. So uh, there's there's a lot of bad things that would would happen. I think we would essentially lose uh, many of our insectivorous birds straight away, disappearance of bats. We would have some real pest problems. We're not going to we're not going to actually lose all insects. Uh, What we'll get on the other side of uh, a huge extinction crisis of insects would be a bunch of things like cockroaches, perhaps, and perhaps uh, some some flies and things are going to get through that we consider very pest-like or maybe even carry uh, human diseases. Uh, we would have the buildup of dung. Uh, dung would no longer be processed by insects. That's largely uh, what they do. Carrion roadkill would uh, would build up along roads. There would be much slower nutrient recycling. Leaves would accumulate in in our yard. It would be a much uh, messier place to live. We we certainly wouldn't want that. And you know, I I love insects for their beauty. I love them for their songs. Uh, I love going to sleep at late summer in New England and hearing the the katydids grinding away. I I leave my window open just so I can hear uh, all the chorusing insects. I love fireflies, and so we'd have a a world much much diminished in terms of its aesthetic beauty and in interest. You know, in in terms of when we walk uh, through through a jungle or uh, even walk in our own backyards. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wagner. This has been a really illuminating conversation and one that I think more people need to be a part of because we cannot overlook the insects and the invertebrates. They are so much a part of the foundation of life itself. And this has been really interesting to dive into all of these wormholes with you. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, wormhole seems uh, uh, an appropriate uh, <laughs> analogy. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad you made the point and and uh, about stop measuring and uh, and start doing something. That that's a message that really needs mm. to be told in a lot of your episodes. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to share it with my colleagues mm. that um, you know science science is great, but you need to take it. You need to you take take it and do something with it. Absolutely. And and there was actually this one other thought that I did want to share with you, kind of around that same uh, feeling around um, stop measuring, let's do something. And it's not, it's not fully similar, but I was reading that there are scientists in Finland that recently developed a vaccine to protect bees against disease. And I just can't help but really kind of feel dismayed at our propensity to think that scientific advance will get us out of the hole we continue to dig. Like how crazy that instead of just working to remove all these cancerous and nervous system wrecking pesticides or development projects like we've been talking about, but instead we're going to develop a vaccine. So it kind of reminds me of this feeling like, oh, we don't have to stop anything we're doing. We can just keep relying on scientific advances to somehow solve the problem, but it's not actually even touching the root of the problem. Right. Yeah, it, it's such a dynamic landscape. I'm most concerned about about turning things around, and I don't know how that's going to co- uh, come about. I do meet. I met with climate activists in uh, New York City last night, and some of those are engineers, and some of them are artists. 
uh, who paint glaciers and some of them are, you know, work at museums and they're trying to get the message of climate change uh, through dis display. So there's so many different ways we can we can attack this. And I wouldn't discount technology in terms of being part of the solution. I mean, there's and we can and part of that could actually be just making uh, out, you know, doing stuff with algae and, and uh, bacteria to 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 uh, trap atmospheric carbon and stuff like that. So I don't know where the solutions are going to come from, but they can come from artists. They can come from dancers. And I just want us all to do something. And it, it, it does seem crazy that we'd be developing vaccines for bees, though. Uh, I, 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 that wouldn't be what that wouldn't be where I would start. But if we can all just work together and uh, keep some of this carbon in the ground and figure out how to keep it out of the atmosphere, that's that's the most important thing. And I, th I think there's some real some real opportunities by getting engineers together with biologists and and uh, coming up with something that's living a living machine that involves algae and and uh, uh, can produce oxygen and and photo and food all at the same time while it's scrubbing the atmosphere or something. There's all kinds of novel things that uh, we, we we can think about, and it's it's just important that we sign up and uh, make a commitment and do the right thing. Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was by Santi Paro. I'd like to thank our podcast team, our podcast audio producer, Andrew Storrs, our media researcher and writer, Francesca Glassbell, our social media coordinator, Aaron Wise, and our music coordinator, Carter Lou McElroy. Please join us over at Patreon and sign up for our newsletter at forthewild.world. And please rate us on iTunes. We really love hearing your feedback and the stories about how the podcast has touched you. We talk about it in our team meetings every week, and it really keeps us inspired to continue doing this work. All right, until next time. From this wild open sky on the country trails and wide, through the canyons dark and wide, the sounds of people talking, words of blue and gray, smells of doors and windows. Closed against the day, sweet smell of the pines, tall western cedar, drifting on the wind through the mountains like a river.